0: Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, we have been making our way through the book of Judges, having a great uh, sermon series through this book, learning a lot about the glory of our great God. We are entrenched in the middle of the story of Gideon. Last week we began a three-sermon series on Uh, the person of Gideon. He has three chapters in the book of Judges, and we began his little uh, chronicled account here in Judges chapter 6 last week. We looked at the relationship between the will of God and the word of God. We saw that God's word is a necessity if we're going to understand the will of God. God's word is trustworthy. God's word is demanding, and God's word is assuring. God's word gives us assurance. And two weeks ago when we looked at this Uh, Passage together, we saw our reaction has to be that to know God's will, we have to know his word. To know God's will, we must know, hear, understand the word of God. To know God's will, you have to trust God's word. To know God's will, you have to respond to God's word. And ultimately, if you respond to God's word, you will worship God. This morning we are gonna see what God says, not just about his word, but about our weakness. We're going to look at his power and our weakness. This is really a chapter. Chapter 7 is really a chapter on the theology of weakness. We typically don't like to be called weak people. The term inadequacy is not looked upon favorably. You are an inadequate person. You are feeble. How about that? You're a feeble, imperfect person. We don't like those words to describe who we are. And yet apart from understanding our weakness we will not understand the strength of God and the power of God 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 God says to Paul my grace is sufficient for you my power is perfected in your weakness so if you do not have weakness you have it but if you don't see it and you don't admit to having it then you will not see the power of God on display in your life God's power is most fully displayed When his people are weak. And we'll see that this morning in Judges chapter 7. Before we dive in, let's cry out to our God because we are weak and ask him to give us divine aid and assistance this morning. God, we ask that your Spirit, Holy Spirit please open our eyes to see. This this book is uh, understandable with fleshly eyes, but to truly be changed, um, we need the Holy Spirit. We need spiritual eyes to understand a spiritual book. So God, please be gracious to us. Give us the gift of illumination. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We would see our weakness on full display, and we would see the beauty of your perfect power inside of our weakness. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Point number one, we're going to just take this in a few points as we go through this story. We need... Weakness. Verses 1 through 8 show us the necessity of weakness. Verses 1 through 8, we're going to pick it back up in Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. In the story of Gideon, you remember he put out the fleece. He's already been able to talk with the Lord. The Lord has commissioned him, O oh, valiant warrior, while he was threshing wheat in a wine press, uh, you are to go defeat the Midianites. And here we have the account. Many of you are familiar with this account. And as we dive into it, we will see, Lord willing, new aspects of this beautiful uh, story. So first, the necessity of weakness. Verse 1, then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. So Gideon, his name means uh, a hewer or a chopper. Um, Jeroboam is somebody who contends with Baal. Remember, he's the one that chopped down the altar that was presented to Baal in the Asherah pole. So he has been given a nickname, uh, the one who fights with Baal, who contends with Baal. So he uh, and all the people who were with him rose early, camped beside the spring of Herod, And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. We're getting ready for battle. The trumpets have already been blown. We are ready to go to war. And the Lord says, verse 2, to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. I love this verse because already God shows up, speaks with Gideon, and says, we have a problem. And Gideon says, okay, what's the problem? Looking out at 32,000 troops, what's the problem? Tell me what the problem is. Let's fix the problem. And God says, here's the problem. You have too many soldiers. This is not a problem that you would typically see in military books. I just read... uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, a little 50, 60-page pamphlet on how to go to battle. Um, It was recommended to me. I don't intend to go to war anytime soon, but if I have to, man, I know what to do. And Sun Tzu never said anything whatsoever about if your army is too big, just pare it down, slow it down, size it down, make sure you have fewer people. That's not a part of the art of war. This is not advice seen in military manuals. What is God doing? Here's what God's doing. He's stacking the deck against himself. He loves to do this. Uh, You could probably think of four or five stories uh, right off the top of your head of God stacking the deck against himself, making it harder for himself to have victory. Um, Think of Joshua, the battle of Jericho. I have an idea. Let's leave the warriors home, and we'll send out the puny, weak pastors. (laughs) I could say that because I'm a puny, weak pastor. Well, we'll send them out. They have no muscles. They haven't trained at all. And they'll be the ones to fight. In fact, we won't fight. We'll just march around the city. And we'll march close enough that they can throw things at us and kill us. But I'll keep you safe. And we'll march around seven times and then we'll just yell. Let's just yell and see what God does. And you know the rest of the story. The walls come tumbling down. What about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings chapter. 18, remember he goes up to Mount Carmel and he says, let's make an altar, let's build this altar, put a sacrifice on it, call down fire. Prophets of Baal can't do it, try three different ways, doesn't work. Elijah's taunting them the whole time and then when they say we give up, Baal isn't listening to us. Elijah says, I'll call my God to work and to bring fire down on this altar and consume it, but before I do, let's put water on it, let's get a trench, dig a trench, make it so that it's impossible to light this thing on fire so that when it is lit on fire, you know that it's God's work, not mine. God loves to stack the deck against himself. He wants to make sure there's no question as to who won the day. Those of you who watch any sort of sporting event, sometimes teams are similar in strength and ability, and the refs who are judging the competition and making the rules and enforcing the rules, penalized teams, have bad calls, and, and a certain team wins, and you think, you know what, I don't think they would have won if it hadn't been for the refs. They blew a call, they messed up, and because of the refs, the team won. We've seen games like that where we go, you know what, this team really was better, but just the refs beat them that day. Not this team, the refs beat them. God wants to make sure that we know, that Gideon knows, that the army knows, that all of Israel knows God's the one who's winning. Nobody's helping out in this. God's the one who's going to win the day. And he's going to do this. He's going to stack the deck against himself in two ways. The first is seen in verse 3. He says, Go, proclaim in the hearing of the people, and say, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So if you're scared, just go home. That's the first thing that Gideon yells out to these uh, 32,000 men. Now this is a command in Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 8 that if anybody's afraid, let them go home because uh, the motivation in that verse is um, fear is contagious. If somebody is going to battle and they start fighting and they get afraid and they start to turn and go home, people are going to run with them. Fear is like a yawn. It's just contagious. You you yawn, it starts being passed around. Fear is the same way in a battle. So God says, let them go home. At the end of verse 3, 22,000 people return. I don't know how many Gideon was expecting. I don't know how loud he shouted this command. Um, hey, uh, people, if you want to go home, go home. but we need, we need warriors. Please don't, not everybody go home. And 22,000 people leave. So he's looking going, okay, I've got 10,000. All right, we're good, 10. I mean, this is still going to be a, a rough battle, but we got 10,000 people. And God says in verse 4, nope the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone whom I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with these 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go home, each man to his own house. What is happening here? There are so many people that try to, to say God's picking the, the, the lapping people versus the kneeling people. And the, there's, there's commentators all over the place that say that there's something happening. There's something virtuous in what's going on. I just want to read one to you that I found interesting. God saw how untrustworthy would be those thousands who carelessly indulged under the lure of the flesh over against the 300 who exemplified a spirit of vigilance and a disciplined life in the spirit. Thus were selected the strong and resolute the men who could be trusted under rigorous conditions, those who did not think of themselves before the enemy's unexpected assault. This is ever the divine principle of selection for service. As Gideon, so the church in this day is served well by the minority group ready and vigilant. This is the example of bad biblical interpretation. This is a bad example of taking these pieces inside this account and saying there's a meaning behind it, and it has to have a meaning for the church today. Guys, there's so much meaning in this text for the church today. We don't need to do that. We don't need to, to shove something into the text that's, I believe, explicitly not there. This, this author is saying that God chose these 300 people because they're valiant, vigilant, disciplined men. That is counterintuitive to what God's saying. He, if there's anything that's happening here, it's taking the losers of the group. He wants to make sure... I mean, these people are probably picking their noses and dropped all their armor. and th- this, is, this has nothing to do with any sense of valiance or diligence. It doesn't hint at virtue or vice and how one is drinking up water. It's just simply God's mechanism for reducing the size of the army. God's not choosing the bravest people, so my guess is these people are the losers of the bunch. Either way, it's not for us to have to wonder what's happening here. We know what's happening. God just wants to shrink this army down, and he does so. 300 men. This is the original 300, by the way. This, it, like... <laughs> Spartans, they have their 300 in the Battle of Thermopylae, but this is, they got that from this. Like King Leonidas went, hmm, if I have 300 people that work for Gideon, it'll work for us today. That, that's where he got this. So everybody plagiarizes the Bible. 32,000 men pared down to 300. That's a reduction of over 99% of your army. Why? Why does God do this? It's in verse 2. The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands because Israel would become boastful saying, My own power has delivered me. My Bible says Israel would become boastful. It's literally that Israel will glorify themselves against me. They'll say we are worth more glory than God is worth. In every single human heart, your heart, my heart, there is a desire to steal glory from God. We either praise God for the victories that are happening in our lives, or we praise ourselves, we boast in ourselves. But in our hearts, there's a deviousness with a tendency to steal God's praise, to think that somehow we are doing what only God could possibly be doing. Human nature, our human nature is such that if there's the tiniest opportunity for us to boast in our works, we're going to do it. We're going to boast. We're going to say, it's us. We did it. Look at how amazing we are. Look at how awesome we are. But that would be boasting in ourselves, glorifying ourselves against God. So can I ask our hearts this morning, do we love to glory in our feebleness? Do we love to glory in our weakness, to say, I have nothing to commend me to God? God has clearly spoken in the scriptures that he's not going to share his glory with anybody else. We are his creation. He is our creator, and he's not going to share his glory with us. And so that's why he says, I need to make sure that there's no way that man can take glory. If one of these 300 warriors takes glory for himself after this victory, they're just flat out stupid, right? They're just, to say, I had a part in this, they literally don't do anything. They just simply do what God has told them to do, and God's going to win the day. So 32,000 men to 300 men, don't forget the trumpets because they're going to come in handy. And what must Gideon be thinking? We know what Gideon thinks. We know from chapter 6 that he's not the most courageous individual, so he's probably a little bit nervous here, and 32,000 people. He's probably going, okay, well, this will kind of work out, but we've got hundreds of thousands over there in Midian. We'll see what happens. At least God's on our side, and God says, let's pare it down to 300 people. What's Gideon thinking as he looks out over his 300 people? Again, I just, I picture, you know, helmets can't, they're not on right, Uh, swords and shields are in the wrong spots. Uh, Somebody's, you know, holding the sword with the actual blade and the handle's up there. What do I do? I hit people? with Like, we don't know what we're doing. And Gideon looks and goes, this is going to be rough. (laughs) This is going to be a rough battle. And I think that God sees that, takes note of that, knows that, obviously. And he's going to act. So number one, we see the necessity of weakness. You need to be weak in order to see God's power perfected in your weakness. Number two, the assurance in weakness. The assurance in weakness. This is verses 9 through 15. The assurance in weakness. Verse 9, Now, the same night it came about that the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp. I've given it into your hands. But if you're afraid to go, go with Purah, the servant, down to the camp. And you will hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands will be strengthened so that you may go down against the camp. God initiates this. I love this. God says, Gideon, I'm sure as you stare at 300 men against all of the Midianites, you're freaking out right now. And I want to give you assurance. I have just made your army incredibly weak, impossibly weak, but I want to give you assurance that in your weakness, I will be your strength. Notice it's God who does this uh, assuring it's God himself who who steps up and speaks to Gideon. I think that this should give us pause. Remember in chapter 6 how Gideon asks God for assurance and many people just say how dare he don't test God and yes there's a the principle of don't test God. But if God here is saying Gideon, I know who you are. I know you're timid. I know you're struggling. I know you're weak and I want to give you courage and assurance. God does that without Gideon even asking. So I think we should have pause about looking at Gideon asking for assurance in chapter 6. God goes out of his way to reassure Gideon. If you love somebody, you're willing to, to do whatever it takes to reassure them of your love. God's no different. He loves you, he loves me, and he wants to reassure us in our weakness that he will take care of us. So, let's see what happens. He goes down, middle of verse 11, with Pura his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Verse 12. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So we've got an army that's as numerous as locusts, can't even count them, uh, innumerable camels uh, without number. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent, and it struck it so that it fell. And it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. Look at this, boom, dream, loaf of bread, knocks over the tent, flat, boom. What does his friend say? Verse 14, I would have said, man, you ate something strange the night before. (laughs) What is going on with your dreams? But he says, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. I love this. Gideon, nervous, terrified. God says, I will grant you reassurance. Go to the camp and just listen to what happens. And he goes down to the camp and he listens. And a man shares the dream. And and the other man says, that means we're going to die. That dream means we're going to die. And I just... I wonder what Gideon's thinking as he's hearing this, because the dream has a big loaf of barley bread, a a big loaf of bread that's tumbling into the camp, and and if you remember, when Gideon was called to fight against Midian, he was threshing wheat to make a loaf of bread, and he was doing it in a wine press, and you remember, if you're going to thresh wheat, you need to be out in the open where there's a breeze, so he's in his wine press where there's no breeze, because he's timid, and he's nervous, and he's afraid, and so he takes the, the wheat and throws it up in the air, and Since there's no uh, breeze or or wind, he just throws it and goes, and just keeps going like that, trying to get the wheat to go, and there's no way he's going to make a loaf of bread. No way. And yet, in this dream, I just wondered if he's kind of chuckling as he hears God giving this man a dream that says, there's a a very mighty loaf of bread that's going to destroy you. And so, God's desire to strengthen Gideon's hand uh, as he said in verse 11, afterwards your hands will be strengthened. I'm going to give you assurance that's going to strengthen you. It happens. Um, drop all the way down to verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship and he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. The reassurance works. How do you know if you have been reassured by God you worship. When you go in worship before the Lord, you know that your heart has been strengthened and you cry out in praise and adoration to God. God reassures us through his word, through people, through circumstances, but I think this is a good place to just press pause and in the midst of the reassurance that Gideon is getting, to hear reassurance that God would give to you this morning. And I think that some of it's here even in this account three reminders okay three reminders that would reassure us reminder number one don't ever think that you're unusable because you're afraid don't ever think that you're unusable to god because you're terrified don't ever think that you have to have an amount of confidence for god to pick you to be on his team or an amount of strength or an amount of sufficiency for god to say i can use you in fact you are most usable when you say i've got nothing I have nothing that can commend me to God. God takes uncertain, completely fearful people and he strengthens their hands in the weirdest ways. In a dream about a loaf of bread, he makes them able to stand wherever they are. Where are you afraid to stand for the Lord? Maybe it's school, maybe it's workplace, maybe it's uh, your neighborhood. Maybe it's in your family. Don't ever think that before God can use you, you have to have some amount of courage. God uses people who realize they have no strength and just simply cry out to God. You're never outnumbered when God is on your side. You're never outnumbered. We are completely outnumbered in this world, vastly outnumbered by the enemy. But the enemy is not stronger than God, and if God is in you, then who can be against you? If God is for you, then nothing can be against you. As Martin Luther says, with God, one is the majority. If you have God on your side, you have all of the power that you need. You're never outnumbered. So that's reminder number one. We need to be reminded about God's control in using fearful, timid people. Reminder number two. The things that stand in opposition to us are rarely as strong as they appear. The things that try to oppose us, we tend to think that they are much stronger than they actually are. Look at Gideon, staring at the Midianites, and he thinks we are going to be slaughtered. And God says, let me give you some reassurance here. They're actually weaker than you think. They look like they're going to destroy you, but they're weaker than you think. Satan cannot force you to sin. He can tempt you, but he cannot make you sin. He's not that powerful. He can't make you do something. The power and the pull of idols can be broken. Addictions can be broken. Persecution can only kill your physical body, but it can do nothing to your soul, and your soul will instantly depart from this life and go into heaven. We need to be reminded that the things that stand in opposition to us are rarely as strong as we think they are. So be reminded about how God can use weak people Be reminded about how the opposition, though they look strong, is actually weaker than we think. And reminder number three, and I think that this is so helpful, and I think Gideon, if he were here today, would tell us this. Reminder number three, God may ask you to take a risk to gain assurance. God may ask you to take a risk on the path to being assured, on the path of assurance. Notice what he says to Gideon. I want you to go down to the camp of Midian and go right up to a tent and listen to a conversation. God does not say, let me give you the dream. God says, take a risk. And if you're too afraid, bring your servant with you, but you have to take a risk. We can find that we lack assurance of God's presence or power with us because we never take risks. We never do something bold in obedience to him. We never step out in faith and find that he is powerful there. So learn from Gideon here. God wants to give you reassurance. He loves to give you reassurance. If you are timid and fearful, you're a perfect candidate for God to say, I have power for you. All you need to do is ask, cry out to him, and in faith, step out. He might have you do something risky, but in bold obedience, do it, and you'll find reassurance there. So we have the necessity of weakness. We have the assurance assurance in weakness. We have assurance in weakness. And finally, number three, we have power in weakness. Number three, power in weakness. This is verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Verses 16 through 25, power in weakness. God has dwindled down the army to make the army weak. God has strengthened Gideon's hands uh, through this assurance that God has given. And now verse 16, he's gonna deliver on his word that Gideon is going to defeat the Midianites. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies. Three companies. If you see a victory in the Bible, in the Old Testament, usually it's because there's three companies, split up into three companies. I don't know why that's the formula. That should have been in Sun Tzu's book, uh, The Art of War. Three companies, Just if you ever find yourself needing to fight somebody, Make three companies, because that's a formula for success in the Bible. So he makes these three three companies, and he says to them, take your trumpets, take your empty pitchers, put them into your hands, bring torches, put them inside the the pitchers, so you have the torches, you have pitchers covering it. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you blow your trumpet all around the camp, and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just posted the watch, they blew the trumpets, smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. And when the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands. And the trumpets in their right hands were blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they just stood in their place around the camp. And all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord sent the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Bashita toward Zerah, as far as the edge of Abel Mahalah and by Tabath. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. This is a, a beautiful scene. 300 men, Gideon says, take a trumpet and take a torch and put a, a pitcher over it. Hide it. And we're going to circle around. And we're going to do something when I give you the command. Break the pitcher so that the torch is seen. So now you'll just see a, a circle of light around you and blow the trumpets. This does three things. This is a wonderful battle plan. It does three things. Number one, it negates the size disparity between the armies. A trumpet usually represents 1,000 troops. So if Midian hears 300 trumpets and they think that a trumpet commands 1,000 troops, they're thinking 300,000 troops. This is going to be a tough battle. Number two, it negates the difference in strength. So not only size, but in strength. The camels, of which uh, prominently they have been spoken of, there's a lot of camels going on in this uh, account, and the camels are not going to be used at all. In fact, they're probably used by God for confusion because they're running around. When they hear the trumpets blowing and they see all the lights happening, they're just probably running around and making more confusion for the Midianites. So it takes the camels out. Can't ride on the camels, can't do Calvary stuff happening. It's not going to be going on. Number three, it takes advantage of the time when the enemy is the weakest. This is in the night watch. So you have a Midianite soldier who would be standing, watch, guarding. And when the time came, he'd look at his watch or Fitbit or Apple watch, which I'm sure they had back then, and he'd look at it, and he would say, oh, my time's up. And he'd start heading back to the tent. So just think about what the Midianites who are in the tents are seeing when they pop up out of bed when they hear the trumpets being blown and they see the lights. They get out, they open the tent, And they just see an armed man walking towards them. And in their exhaustion, in their sleepiness, in their drowsiness, they just think, this guy who's an armed man must be coming after me. And so they attack them. And so Midian fights against himself. Literally, God's going to win with 300 guys just going smash. That's all they do. And they win. They don't kill one single soldier. God has a masterful battle plan. And so, verse 24, Gideon sends messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against Midian. Take the waters before them as far as beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned. They took the waters as far as beth Barah, the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. I love those names, by the way. If somebody's due to have a baby, Zeb. Just great name. Just Zeb. Maybe middle name, but Zeb. So, Oreb and Zeb are killed, Oreb at the rock, and Zeb at a wine press. That's going all the way back to the beginning of this account. The rock where, remember, God lapped up the the soup fire, came out of the rock and consumed the sacrifice and the meal. And the wine press where Gideon was threshing his wheat. So you have it all bookended all the way back to the beginning of the account. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. We have the necessity of weakness, we have reassurance in weakness, and we have the power in weakness. How do we zip all these things up? I think there's three points that we need to make from this account, three points that our hearts need to hear this morning. Point number one, you are weaker than you think you are. You are weaker than you think you are. God's making all this happen so that Gideon looks back and he thinks, this victory was not mine, it's God's. My only part was trusting God and obeying Him. So the glory is His and the privilege of being a part of it's all mine. The 300 men are going to think this battle was impossible for us to win. Whoever drew up this battle plan of bringing 32,000 soldiers down to 300 men, that was ridiculous, but it worked. This is God doing it. What a privilege to be a part of it. God gets the glory. The rest of Israel, who didn't even fight, would say, I wasn't even there. God rescued me even though I wasn't doing anything at all. God doesn't work in spite of our weaknesses. God works because of our weaknesses. He works through our weaknesses. In fact, if you think that you are not weak, all that you will be given by God is a chance to try and prove that. Just try and prove that you're not weak. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5 says, if you are prideful in heart, God will stand in opposition against you. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. So if you proclaim your weakness, you glory in your weakness, He will exalt you. If you say, I'm not weak at all, all God's going to give you is the chance to try that out as He opposes you. God, all throughout the Bible... We see examples of God doing amazing exaltation of humble people, um, lowly people, and we see the opposite. We see see God bringing down prideful people. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar um, wakes up one day and says, Look at my kingdom. Look at everything that I have made by my hands, by my power, and for my glory. What happens in the next sentence as the words are leaving his mouth God turns him into this like bird-dinosaur-cow thing. We we can't even figure out what he is. He has claws and hair and this weird thing. God says, I'm going to utterly humiliate you. And that's, I believe God would say to us today, Plan A for all of us is admit our weakness in humility. Plan B, if we choose to not admit our weakness in humility... Plan B, because God loves you, is your humiliation. You either humble yourself or God will do the humbling for you. And he will do that to show you you're weaker than you think you are. You and I are weaker than we think we are. Now, a lot of us kick against that. So let me give you three ways in which that's very helpful that we are weak. It's very helpful that we are weak. Number one, our weakness is the basis for our salvation. Our weakness is the basis for our salvation. Remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God didn't choose many people wise, noble, powerful. God chose the weak things of the world to confound the, the strong. God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The basis of our salvation is Matthew chapter 5: Blessed are the poor in spirit. Coming to God saying, I'm bankrupt, I have nothing. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you say, I'm not weak, I'm very powerful then God would say to you, then you don't have the kingdom because you don't get into the kingdom by your strength and your might. You get into the kingdom by God's work. We see this throughout the Bible. God chose Israel. Why did God choose Israel? Why did God pick Israel to be his chosen people? Uh, When Israel gets very large, they say, oh, we know the answer to that because we're awesome. We're awesome. You had to have picked us because we're awesome. And God says, "Let's, let's be reasonable here. Number one, I picked you before you were even born. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a nation through you. You remember, who's called Israel? It's Jacob. Three generations before Jacob is even born, God says there's going to be a guy who's going to have these tribes and all this uh, number of generations that's innumerable beyond the the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. This, This was chosen before anything even happened. So how can we then say, well, Israel's awesome. That's why God picked them. God picked them when they didn't even exist. And God picked them to demonstrate His power. It wasn't that somehow all of the nations like, submitted their applications. We would like to be God's chosen people. Let's submit our application, which would obviously have been submitted in triplicate because it's a government document. So boom, give all these different uh, applications. God looks through them and goes, well, you know, these ones are really awesome. These ones, throw those away. Israel looks like they could, they could do it. They, they're pretty sweet. There was no application God picked them when they didn't even exist and God picked you and picked me Romans 5:8 when we were his enemies That's why Ephesians chapter 2 is written it's written to the church you and I were dead in our trespasses It's written to remind us if we ever start to think well God picked me to be on his team because I mean look at me I'm awesome Read Ephesians 2 No, no, no. you were dead in your sins. A dead person can't do anything. God breathed life into you. It's the basis of our salvation. Our weakness is the basis of our salvation. And our weakness, number two, is how repentance works. Weakness is how repentance works. It's only when we see our sin for what it truly is that we will love and cherish the Savior. Somebody says to you, hey, I paid all of your bills this month. And you say, well, that's great. Thanks. Awesome. I'm very grateful for that. Thank you so much. It's only when you find out, and here's what all of the bills cost. And there was a surprise one, and LEDWP would raise the rates, and all these different things. Here's the bills that I actually paid. If somebody just comes to you and says, I paid the bill for you, you go, thanks. That's great. I'm super grateful. Thank you so much. But when they list out how much they actually paid, you go, oh, my word. Thank you so much. It's only when we are given a list of our sins and we see our weakness on full display that we go, oh my word, thank you, God, for saving me. If we just hear, God loves you and saves you, we go, okay, cool. I didn't know that I really needed saving, but thanks, God. But if we realize our weakness, we will know God's grace truly, and it will lead us to repentance, right? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So our weakness is the basis of our salvation, and it's how repentance works. Number three, and, and finally under this uh, conclusion number one, of we're way weaker than we think we are. Uh, weakness is almost always the basis for growth. Weakness is almost always the basis for growth. Ask any seasoned Christian, when was the season of life in your life that you grew the most in godliness? I think 99 times out of 100, It will be when they were going through terrible trials, that immense suffering that just knocked everything out from under them. That's when they say, oh, God's power is perfected in my weakness. It's very rare that Christians grow the most during uh, the awesome mountaintop experiences. Usually it's those deep, dark valleys of the shadow of death that we see, okay, God, you have me, you're not letting me go. So our weakness is the basis usually for our growth. It's the basis for salvation, it's the basis for repentance, and it's the basis usually for our growth. So I think from this text we should be reminded, along with Gideon and his 300 soldiers, we are way weaker than we think we are. We're way weaker than we think we are. We overestimate our awesomeness. Number two, conclusion point number two, God is way stronger than you think he is. God is way stronger than you think he is. When we are weak, he is strong. When we are weak, And the more dependent we are upon God in our weakness, the more his power and his sufficiency is seen, is savored, and is glorified and exalted. You and I are way weaker than we think we are, but God is way stronger than you think he is. And as you see his strength on display in your weakness, he will receive all the praise and all the glory. And that leads to point number three. Third and finally, in Christ, you can do way more than you think you can. In Christ, you can do way more than you think you can. We are way weaker than we think we are. God's way stronger than we think he is. And if you are on his side and through Jesus Christ, through his spirit, you are able to do far more than you think possible. Just ask Gideon. If you'd have gone, rewind the tape all the way to the beginning, Gideon, would you like to fight with 300 guys who have trumpets and a torch? I think Gideon would say, said, no, let's stick with the 32,000 people. But at the end of this hey, Gideon, would you like to go back and fight with 32,000 people on your plan? Gideon would say, no, I like being weak so that God's power can be made manifest. Gideon's faith to trust God with 300 men is what he's commended for in Hebrews chapter 11. His faith, God, you can do this. Even when it looks like you can't, I know that you're stronger than I think you are. And if I have Christ, I can do more than I think I can. This reminds me of, Jonathan, uh, if you remember, Jonathan's going to fight against the Philistines. There's this huge—it's just a wall. It's a big cliff. And it's just a wall f- a face on the side of a mountain cliff. And Jonathan says, "They're up there. They're not expecting us to walk up this way. Um, they're expecting us to come from the front side because there's an actual road there instead of just the face of a mountain." And so he says to his armor bearer, "Let's try it out. Let's try it out. I mean, God's promised to keep Israel safe and to give us to give uh, the Philistines into our hands." So I know it sounds crazy, but let's do it. And they go up there and they slaughter with two people. They slaughter all of these Philistines. And they take the day for God's name and for his renown, simply because they say, I think if I'm on God's side and I trust his power, I can do way more than I think I can. The bottom line for us in Judges chapter 7 is the more that you realize how insufficient you are, the more that you will realize how glorious God's salvation is. Now, one last thing. Go back up to verse 18 and verse 20. There's one element that we just skipped over very quickly. There's one element in this account that doesn't bode well, and it's the battle cry that Gideon himself says. This is what we should say. For the Lord, verse 18, and for whom? Gideon. Gideon will start morphing into a different character. Chapter 8, we're going to see a completely different Gideon. And I wonder where it all starts. And I think it might start here, where Gideon goes, Yeah, I'm trusting in God, and I kind of, I kind of am awesome. Look at what I'm doing through God's strength. This is great. I'm an awesome leader. The story is going to continue in chapter 8, and we will see that weakness is not only necessary, and it's not only you, you are granted reassurance in weakness, and you don't just have power in weakness, But there's a fourth thing that weakness must have in order to succeed, and it's perseverance. If you do not persevere in your weakness, you will end terribly. And unfortunately, Gideon does not have perseverance. And so chapter 8 is going to show us a terrible ending of Gideon's life. But that's a story for another time. God, thank you so much for your all-sufficient nature, your glory on display in every aspect of creation, your sovereign hand in every aspect of our own lives and the way that you direct us, you guide us. Uh, and so we want to, together, collectively, um, just proclaim our weakness and glory in our nothingness. You have called us to yourself, um, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of grace and grace alone. We, we began our service singing about grace and grace alone. And God, we want to end our service now as we have seen The beauty of uh, weakness and your power being made perfect in our weakness. We want to end by saying you, therefore, get all the glory. We don't get any of the glory. It's all to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and confirm these truths to our heart. Should nothing of our